welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Uh, Counterpunch is really in need of support, as is all independent media these days. Our spaces are shrinking. We have to maintain them and defend them. And frankly, uh, financial support, I think at this point, is vital for all of those outlets that you support. And hopefully Counterpunch is one of them. Uh, You can get a subscription to the print magazine. That's a great way to support this project. You can also make a donation through PayPal. You can uh, do it by phone and actually talk to a human. Any uh, any way you want to do that, that's really appreciated. Um, I'm a supporter of a number of independent outlets, including Counterpunch, and I consider it kind of a responsibility, and I know a lot of you do as well. So thank you to those of you who have already donated and who are considering it now and in the future. So let me turn to my guest today. Very happy to have him on the show to talk about, I think, some of the most vital issues that we have in the economic life of this country today. Samuel Stein is on the program. Samuel studies geography at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, He is a contributing writer at Jacobin, Guardian, a number of other publications as well. And he is here to talk about his brand new book. I would call it an absolute must read for 2019, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. Absolutely got to get yourself a copy of that book. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. Samuel Stein, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for writing this book. It's full of, I guess, the most timely uh, subject matter we could really be discussing in 2019, the issues of real estate and gentrification seemingly everywhere, certainly impacting the lives of many of the people listening here. So let's jump right into it, Samuel, if we could. Um The title of your book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, there's actually a number of questions that I have loaded into that title alone. So let's start with that. What is the real estate state in the way that you describe it in the book and the way that you define it? I'm thinking about it in a similar way. We talk about other capital state formations, Um, like sometimes we talk about the welfare state being the... um, the arm of the state that's interested in uh, sort of picking up the burden of social reproduction. Sometimes we talk about the carceral state, the arm of the state that's interested in locking people up and policing. Um, We talk about the administrative state, the part of the state that actually administers the day-to-day functioning of government. Um, I felt like given the moment we're in, in which there's so much power invested in real estate, and so much uh, real estate lobbying into government, we needed a word to talk about the confluence of not just capital in general, but real estate capital and state power. Um, It's not necessarily a new thing, even though it's a new term. Uh, It's certainly not all encompassing. I'm not arguing that America is a real estate state or something like that. Um, But like the carceral state, like the warfare state, it's a component of government that's been around in one form or another for a very long time, but is of particular importance right now. Um, And I think it's of particular importance, especially at the local level of government, because at least in the US, that's where a lot of our planning is done. Um, We certainly have uh, city, uh, I'm sorry, state and federal policies that relate to housing and relate to real estate, but a lot of the planning about what can be built where is done at the local level. And so I think that's where we see the real estate state at its um, strongest manifestation. 
I think that's critically important to remember that we're talking about something like a macro level issue, but really one that exists at the micro level in, in thousands and tens of thousands of examples. And uh, not to not to obviously point to the giant elephant in the room, but the other aspect of this that's obviously relevant here is the fact that we have a real estate fascist in the White House, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's no coincidence that uh, Donald Trump is a real estate developer. Uh, it patterns the way he sees the world. Um, it's even in his foreign policy from time to time. If you'll recall uh, that very weird gathering in North Korea a couple of years ago, Trump talked about watching North Korean propaganda videos and saying, wow, that place where they're launching the rockets would be a beautiful place to build a luxury condo. We can work out a deal. So the guy is a luxury developer to the core, um, and he's chosen for his cabinet other people who see the world that way. I think Steve Mnuchin is, is a good example. Uh, a guy who is known as the eviction king of California is now the treasury secretary. Yeah, exactly. And and in many ways, I think we're going to circle back to that issue, I think, throughout this conversation. But I want to I want to introduce readers to the beginning of the book, because you do something, Samuel, there that I think is really I really appreciate it. And I, I you know, I'm not saying it to commend you, but rather to introduce this topic, namely that in the beginning of the book, as you're as you're kind of approaching this subject, you seem to have made a pretty strategic choice as an author. You didn't say that this is a story about deregulation, that this is a story about failure, that this is a story about, you know, fill in the blank, as many such books might have. Instead, you kind of named the culprit and you called it capital. And you talked about it as capital doing X and capital doing Y. And I thought that was an important choice you made. So I'd like you to expand a little bit about why you focused in and named the name of capital. Yeah, I mean, it's not just people making bad decisions or mean decisions or something like that. This is the logic of capital. And uh, capital, of course, contains competing logics. Different elements of capital are looking for, um, for different things from the state in order to you know, turn their investments into more money. That, that's what capital does when it's in motion. Um, and real estate capital is really where it's at right now in terms of global capital. Um, I, I start early on in the book talking about how um, at this time we're living in a moment where 60% of the world's hard assets are invested in real estate. Um, and we've, of course, had times before where land was concentrated uh, in small numbers of hands. But what's kind of interesting here is it's not just land in general, it's housing. And a lot of that housing is in urban contexts. So urban real estate is really the concentration of uh, global capitalist attention right now as the way to hide money, as the way to make money, um, as the, the main profit generating lever of the world. Um, of course, real estate is always dependent on other modes of capital. Um, real estate is valuable in part because people want to live close to their work and so that work is not necessarily in real estate it may be in finance it may be in manufacturing it may be in something else um, but real estate kind of went from being the secondary thing that maybe leached off of what people used to call productive capital uh, and now is really the driving force so yeah i think it's important to call it capital and not just to call it uh, developers and landlords and homeowners it is all those things, but it's also more than that. 
Indeed, and I don't mean to immediately make this about the 2020 election, because that's certainly not what we're going to be discussing, but I do think it's appropriate, uh, as we have debates among people on the left end of the political spectrum between somebody like an Elizabeth Warren and somebody like a Bernie Sanders, I think it does uh, become relevant, this discussion about whether we can name the name of capital and whether what we're looking for is reform and regulation or something more fundamental. And I think the distinction between Bernie and Liz Warren kind of falls into that camp. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think that it's not um, a situation where we can't imagine what reforms might make this situation better, um, but rather that we can imagine what they are. And then we need to say, and none of that is happening. And then think about why that is. Like, it's not a failure of imagination. It's not a failure of ideas. It's not a failure of policies or a failure of plans is that the logic of capitalism is dictating a completely alternative scenario, which is screwing over working class people all over the country. Whether they are living in these rapidly gentrifying cities or they're living in spaces that are undergoing severe disinvestment, which is really the majority of the country's you know, physical surface area is suffering from disinvestment rather than hyperinvestment, but those become the two poles when real estate is so valuable um, and when capital has so much power. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago uh, Mnuchin, who's now the Treasury Secretary, and his connection to uh, the real estate question, the foreclosure crisis, and of course that also connects to the 2020 campaign. But um, I, I wanted to just note that Mnuchin also represents something else, and, and it's something that you talk a lot about in the book, namely this sort of intersection between finance capital and real estate, that is to say, between finance speculation and real estate speculation, and he kind of represents a nexus between those two. It's essentially between Wall Street and the real estate uh, f- sector of the economy, and they're increasingly intertwined, aren't they? Certainly. I mean, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the financialization of housing, Um, It's not that housing was somehow not financial before, but that um, the amount of capital that's in uh, in real estate, the amount of speculation involved, the way that we have turned uh, homes into these uh, hyper securitized um, finance objects that people around the world can invest in without really having any connection to any physical place uh, that really drives the real estate market all over the country. And once again, not only in hypergentrified places like New York, like San Francisco, but also in places that went through the subprime foreclosure crisis um, and huge amounts of land was turned over from individual homeowners to speculators. We're now in a situation where BlackRock, the hedge fund or private equity fund, uh, is the largest landlord, not only in the country, but in the world. And that is uh, the, the world that we're living in post-2008, in which many of the same uh, formations that caused the crisis uh, have only strengthened their power. Exactly. Now, in the book, you do go to some pains to describe an economic transformation process, I think one that really 
leads to this situation, I guess you could say by the 1990s of what we would now call the modern period of real estate speculation. So um, at the risk of asking you to uh, give us a basic rundown here, can you just kind of walk us through some of the factors that led to the situation that we had in the 1990s and through to today of real estate speculation? What changed from 1940s to the 1990s in the economy in the U.S. and globally that that led to that? Right. I mean, a lot changed, certainly. Um, you know, smack in the middle of that period, we have the neoliberal turn uh, in the mid-1970s. Um, but I think one thing that I thought was particularly significant for understanding the changes in cities and particularly the changes in the politics of urban planning has to do with the geography of manufacturing in cities. Um, it used to be that there were competing branches or elements of capital within cities that were making different kinds of demands on the state. And I, I pulled this analysis from a book called Planning the Capitalist City by Richard Fogelsong, which is really fantastic for anyone who wants to get a kind of um, anti-capitalist view of urban planning history in the United States. And Fogelsong was arguing that um, real estate capital and manufacturing capital um, competed for the attention of the state with somewhat different demands and a similar bottom line. The similar bottom line is they were holding on to private property rights and certainly were against the socialization of just about anything. But they wanted from the state uh, certain kinds of infrastructure that would make their investments profitable, be it roads, waterworks, electricity, etc. Um, they wanted some level of social reproduction taken care of by the state, public education, for example, so that there would be a workforce that was prepared to, uh, to work for them or people to buy the housing or rent it. So they had those kinds of demands, but then they started to diverge in some ways. And a lot of what they diverged around had to do with questions of land. And specifically, Fogelsong was arguing, manufacturing capital uh, wanted cheap land. They make stuff on top of land, so they're not trying to make a profit off of the land itself. They're trying to keep land costs and building costs as low as possible so that they can get their factory, make their good, and sell it uh, without having to worry about paying a whole bunch of money for land and rent. They also want housing costs to be cheap for their workers because as soon as those housing costs go up, the workers start to demand higher wages, and then uh, they get into industrial conflict. So there was kind of a branch of capital that was interested in cheap land and housing. Of course, the real estate uh, sector wanted the opposite. They wanted the value of land, of housing, of property to be moving low uh, uh, to ever upward heights. So that was a conflict within the capitalist class. Similarly, around environmental regulations, for a long time, manufacturing uh, capital was completely against environmental regulation. They wanted to be able to pollute whatever they wanted, wherever they wanted. Meanwhile, real estate capital historically in the U.S. was for environmental regulation because it would either clean up brownfields that would create new space for development or help preserve their investment uh, rather than have it be polluted and uninhabitable. So that was kind of the conflict. And then, of course, the working class was demanding an entirely different set of uh, priorities from the state in terms of urban planning. And the role of the planner, the theory goes, was to kind of triangulate between the two branches of capital and between labor, and to do so in a way that seemed popularly legitimate, 
but maintain capitalist control. It had to be uh, participatory enough that the people felt that it was legitimate and viable and that they had a role in it, but that capital knew that they always had the upper hand. And so there would be participatory processes, but with limited choices over what could happen. That's the model for many, many, many years. What starts to happen after the 1940s, as you mentioned, is what we often call in shorthand deindustrialization, which is not the end of industry by any stretch. The world becomes far more industrialized, but it's a geographic reorganization of where industrial production happens. And in the US, it's less and less in the center of the cities, the center of the most populous cities where it was happening before. So first it goes just to the outskirts of the city, then into these kind of industrial suburbs, then to the US South, and then out of the country altogether. This is not a complete deindustrialization of the United States. There is still industry, there is still urban industry, but it is not anywhere near the force that it was before. And so then what you have is a situation where capital is no longer really split within itself in terms of what the capitalist class is demanding of the state. Real estate uh, can kind of run the game, and it is, of course, still... Um, pushing plans that are against the interest of the working class, but the planners are now only um, kind of deciding between real estate and the people. The capitalist class is no longer divided, which was kind of productive for our side for a while. So then you have uh, the urban planning apparatus reorienting itself around the demands of real estate and selling it to the public as if this was in all of our best interests as if what was good for the real estate industry was good for all of us, whether we were homeowners or tenants, whether we were newcomers or we had been there for decades. Um, and this, of course, is not the truth. In, it, there's, there's different interests here between developers and tenants, between landlords and tenants, between uh, small homeowners and major developers, in the same way that there's differences, fundamental differences, between what uh, the owners of the means of production want and the working class want uh, for our pay scales and our benefits and everything else. The same goes for uh, the terrain of, of housing and the terrain of urban planning. But it's sold to us in this kind of ideologically thick way in which uh, real estate gets to set the terms and all of us are told that this is in our best interest. That's the case that I'm making uh, in short in the book as to how and why this transformation happened in our cities and what was the role of the state in producing it. And I think, of course, also there's the question of uh, the, the flow of money and the flow of investments, right? And as money moves more freely globally, so too does real estate speculation such that it becomes increasingly tied to a lot of the foreign policy and a lot of the other things that maybe it maybe was decoupled from in decades prior. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and it, it points to this ultimate irony, which is that, um, you know, real estate should be the most grounded thing. It's literally buying land in a place. And yet um, creative finance, uh, deregulation, um, this shift in urban planning has enabled uh, real estate to go global while staying local. 
um, in a way that is very profitable for, for the finance sector and for the real estate sector. Absolutely. I mean, you have whole countries that are in many ways a real estate speculation scheme. I mean, I'm thinking of places like Dubai and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And you, you also saw um, some of those countries leading the building boom in the last couple decades, which was tremendously helpful for capital. You know, um, David Harvey likes to point out that, and I'm, I might get this statistic a little bit wrong, but it's something like uh, more capital, I'm sorry, more concrete was poured in China since 2008 than was poured in the history of the United States prior. So there was a huge, tremendous building boom out there, which uh, was very useful to uh, capital that needed investment in some place at a time of, of global crisis. Naturally. Uh, so before we go to the break, I want to just squeeze in one more question, if I could. And this is about zoning. You talk a lot about zoning in the book. And uh, zoning, I think this is probably not news to most people, but zoning is both a planning tool, but in some senses, and you kind of lay lay this out in the book, also really a social and a political weapon. Can you talk a little bit about zoning and how it's both a planning tool, but in particular, a weapon of the political, economic, and social status quo? Sure. Um, so just for those who don't know, uh, zoning is a land use tool that is used by usually local governments to decide what can be built where. And in most places, it determines what they call use type, which means what type of, uh, of use can be done with the building, as in, is it industrial? Is it commercial? Is it residential? Is it a community space? Is it some combination of that? And then the other thing is what planners call bulk, which means how tall is the building, how wide is it, how much space is there between the street and the building or between one building and the next. And so zoning then shapes uh, the built environment, what it looks like, uh, what it's used for. And it's often talked about in kind of neutral ways as just trying to create the, the best built environment possible, respond to the needs of communities. But there's a tremendous amount of money at stake, and that's where we get into the, the second half of your question. When you change the zoning of land in a place that investors are, are interested in, you create um, a different calculus. And so if you upzone or increase the development capacity of a, of a building by allowing for a taller structure or changing an industrial space into a residential space, you're handing over or creating tremendous amounts of value for whoever happens to own the land. Because suddenly what could be a five-story building can now be a 25-story building. So that's 20 more stories of rent generating uh, units. So that's quite a bunch of future wealth that will be created and the, whoever owns it can either capitalize on that wealth by building out to the new maximum or can sell it to someone else for a whole lot of money. So this is a case of the state creating tremendous value for uh, who owns the land, and it's sort of a spoil system. If you're in at the time of the rezoning, then you can make tremendous amounts of money. That's how it usually works. It's worth noting, though, that um, you, you can also make a lot of money off of a downzoning or a protective zoning or where you diminish the amount that can be built in the future. If you own a five-story building and the zoning is changed so that in the future you can only build a three-story building there, well, your five-story building has now been allowed to stay in this area. It's worth a lot of money 
uh, compared to what could be built there in the future. So you can play this game in a lot of different ways. Often zoning has been done uh, in a way that creates new opportunities for developers to move into areas that either are gentrifying already or have not gentrified, but can now because of this change in zoning. That certainly doesn't mean that zoning equals gentrification or rezoning equals gentrification. You can rezone in ways that make it harder to gentrify a neighborhood. But that's not really what our cities are doing. Our cities are using this as uh, a key way to aid the development of their cities for capital, not for the people. Um, and I, I also want to mention that this is a thing that cities are doing um, not only at a sort of a, a slavish devotion to capital, but also because many of their other better modes of planning uh, have been foreclosed, especially around housing. And so if you think about it, the two main demands of uh, socialist movements in the United States and a lot of other places around housing have often been public housing and rent control. The federal government is not investing in new public housing and actually puts limits on the capacity of cities to develop new public housing. So that's kind of hard to do. Um, a lot of states prevent cities from having good, strong rent control laws. And so the state kind of prevents the, the city from doing what it could do to limit the amount that uh, landlords can raise rents. So once those tools are taken away, zoning becomes kind of like the last thing that they have. And it's this very blunt tool, which as I said, no matter what change happens, uh, can be useful to real estate capital. So it's really a situation that a lot of cities have been put into and a lot of planners have been put into, even though they uh, can imagine much better ways of doing housing and doing development. So much more to say about that. Let's take a quick break. Uh, you already mentioned gentrification in that response. That's where I want to go next when we come back from the break and obviously talk a little Trump and a whole lot more. I'm chatting with Samuel Stein. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Samuel Stein. I, again, the book, you got to get yourself a copy, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State from Verso. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I get a lot of books in the mail. I, I read through them, etc. This one, This one was a pleasure because I think it really does connect to so many of the struggles that many of us are involved in, both on the ground in terms of activism, but also in terms of how we view the world and things that are happening in the world. So again, I, I, I couldn't recommend the book more highly. So, uh, Samuel, we were talking before the break about zoning, and you mentioned in your response the word gentrification. Now, that one is certainly not going to be news to most people listening. We hear the word all the time, but it becomes one of those words that is used so often that maybe we need to pause and really ask what exactly it means. So, tell us about gentrification, what the process is, how you're defining it, and then maybe uh, even more so, how it's different from other periods when we've seen investment in cities and quote-unquote urban renewal. Right. Um, yeah, it, it is a word that's kind of used in many different ways by different people to mean different things and therefore can become um, almost a meaningless signifier. But I really think it is important as a word. I mean, if we look at what the word actually is, it's gentrification. So the gentry, of course, are, are like the landed gentry, um, therefore, this is a class process right in its name. And that's why I think it's useful and worth holding on to rather than uh, a more kind of general term like urban transformation or something like that. Gentrification um, suggests that it's a class project right in the name. I really like the definition of gentrification by a geographer named Ipsita Chatterjee. And her short version of, of the definition is the theft of space from labor and its conversion into spaces of profit. Um, I think that that kind of gets to what's going on in gentrification. And I really appreciate um, the word theft. It's about taking away from people the spaces that they built up through their labor. And that labor is, you know, the labor of literally building buildings um, and building infrastructure and everything else, but it's also building neighborhood institutions. It's cultural production, building up the culture of a place which then gets capitalized and kind of sold as cool to a new class of people. It's the social reproductive work that goes into keeping those neighbors uh, still there and living through times of severe capital disinvestment. And then it's taken away from them. And it's the space is, is transformed from the space that they built up, the space of labor, into the space of profit for capital. And I think it's also important to think about gentrification in a uh, historical timeline where it is the third phase in a process. And that process is, in short, investment, disinvestment, reinvestment. And gentrification is that third one, it's the reinvestment. But it doesn't happen without those first two. First, uh, spaces are invested in, the built environment uh, is created, then they're disinvested, capital pulls out of those spaces and moves to others. Like we can think about the, the period in the middle of the 20th century and especially later on uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s in which capital is pulling out of cities and investing very much in the suburbanization of the country. And then you have the return of capital, the reinvestment, uh, and that's where gentrification happens. And so, yes, it's about richer people moving into 
neighborhoods that were working class, but it's also about the investment of capital into that built environment. And so then we can think about um, gentrification, just like any other economic process, as one that has producers and consumers. So the producers of gentrification are the banks that give the loans to people to buy out buildings, uh, kick out the tenants, raise the rents, or turn them into single family homes if they were uh, rooming houses or apartment buildings in the past. Uh, so it's the bankers, it's the landlords, it's the developers that build up luxury buildings in working class neighborhoods. Those are the producers of gentrification. Then you've got the consumer side, which is whoever moves into those buildings after they're built, or whoever um, moves into the, the new, much higher rent apartments after the older tenants are displaced. Um, and that's where you get sort of the cultural markers, the hip coffee shops, the, um, the, the conversion of um, neighborhood stores into either corporate chains or places that are just obscenely expensive for everyday things like coffee and sandwiches. That's the cultural side and that's the, uh, the consumption side. And there's been this debate among academics for a very long time about which is the real culprit. And any Marxist will tell you it's production, not consumption. So, you know, officially that's the side that I'm on. But you really have to have both in order for the thing to be successful. If you have the production side of gentrification without the consumption, you have a failed investment. People have put a bunch of money into a built environment and nobody is purchasing it. If you have a bunch of consumers for gentrification, but there's no production, then you have unmet demand. You have a bunch of people who would move to a place, people who would buy a new condo or something if it were being built, but it's not. And so you have to have the two together. The production side has to be there and the consumption side. And I think the role of the state, the capitalist state often, is to ensure that both sides are there. And often that is done through seemingly um, uh, objective urban planning techniques that both secure the conditions for the investment and the conditions uh, for the new class of people to move in and enjoy them at the expense of those who live there and built up the neighborhoods before. And actually, in that process, we see an even further uh, aspect of this sort of insidious financialization of all of this. Because, for instance, after 2008 and the subprime crisis, there was there was a question about whether or not you would continue to see the kind of real estate speculation and real estate development that you had seen in the cities to that point. And then you have uh, state policy like quantitative easing, which allows these large financial institutions essentially interest-free money that they can turn around and then lend to the real estate speculators and so forth. So keeping the pump going, sort of priming the pump with state policy in order to allow this process to continue even when market forces may have dictated otherwise. Yeah, and I think that that's a really classic example um, of the state reproducing the conditions that led to the crisis as the solution to the crisis. And we see that in all sorts of sectors. We see that in the way that um, the state is now kind of dealing with the issue of mass incarceration through other modes of, uh, of carceral politics. We see that um, in, in crisis after crisis where there's a problem and then uh, the state seeks to solve that problem by making the problem worse. We certainly see that in the realm of gentrification where we had way too much capital invested in speculative real estate and then through, as you said, quantitative easing is one method. 
um, through the spills of, uh, of tax increment financing and uh, opportunity zones and all these other language uh, for ways to get a bunch of speculative capital pumped into certain places, we reproduce those conditions all over again. Um, and we've seen some things that would have been hard to predict, like the rise of what's called predatory equity in many cities, uh, which is private equity that's buying up um, apartment buildings for the for the most part at rates that incur so much debt that the, the rents could never pay them back. And so they're premised on kicking out the tenants and raising the rents. That we could predict probably, but it's happening in all sorts of formerly affordable housing, rent stabilized housing, um, what are called Mitchell-Lama uh, housing in New York, which is a older state subsidized form of housing. All these forms are being bought up by predatory equity firms, and often there are through deals that are structured uh, through the local government. And you know that's a, a really glaring example of what I'm calling the real estate state at work. Um, in the time we have remaining, I want to squeeze in a couple of more questions. Let me just kind of rapid fire a few at you. What is sure. what is highest and best use, and why is that such a problematic idea? Sure, that's the the planning terminology for how you should treat land. Um, and basically the idea is that planners should look for uh, what they call the highest and best use for a given parcel and incentivize that through zoning, through tax incentives or whatever. Um, but by highest and best use, they really mean like the most capital intensive and lucrative. They don't mean sort of a social definition of, of highest and best use. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean conserving what's working already for the working class. It, it's always about transforming it into the most profitable use. And in that sense, it turns urban planning into a kind of real estate valuation model where you're constantly looking for how more money could be made and how the state could intervene to help capitalists make that money. Right. I'm going to I'm going to use the land to build a factory where we slaughter puppies and we can them and we sell them to children. And that's the most profitable, therefore, the highest and the best use. Certainly more profitable than the uh, you know tenement building that was there before. Exactly. So um, I, I actually have to tell you, I, I wasn't so familiar with that term. Uh, that was something really interesting that I learned in the book and really appreciated uh, the explanation of that. Now, you, you, the book focuses quite a lot on New York, obviously. Uh, that's a, a city you know well. That's a city mm -hmm. I know well. And um, so I think that we've just had a very real example of organizing, political organizing against a lot of the forces and a lot of the um, trends that we've been talking about here. And I'm referring to the fight against Amazon headquarters in Queens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. the, the struggle on organizing against Amazon was really in many ways a struggle about housing, a struggle against real estate developers and against real estate capital. So I want to just ask you to describe a little bit about what you know about the fight against Amazon and how housing and real estate really played in played a central role in that fight. Right. I mean, uh, as probably most listeners know, but just in case, Amazon was uh, looking to build a second headquarters and had this national competition for who could give away the most, which city could give away the most in terms of tax breaks, in terms of labor standards, in terms of environmental standards. It was a race to the bottom and it was really despicable. And New York and uh, Crystal City, Virginia won the, the competition. 
And people in New York City freaked out. I mean, to be honest, it was a divided response. There were people who supported it, and I can talk about that as well. But there were a lot of people who said, uh, this is not going to be good for us. Yes, they're creating jobs, but those jobs aren't for us. Um, they're for wealthier people who are then going to move into our neighborhoods, uh, and there's going to be huge rounds of new luxury development in working-class parts of Queens, which is the most diverse uh county in the country. Um, it's uh, still predominantly working class, um, but largely immigrant. And they did, a lot of people did not see this in their best interest and argued that it was going to have terrible effects on the housing market in that uh, borough. And so there was a great deal of organizing um, and a really kind of inspiring model where a lot of groups who were not a part of um, the kind of formal nonprofit sector rose to the top of this uh, campaign and organized their neighbors, then kind of like pushed those formal nonprofits to take that same side. We had the union split. So some unions supported this development and some didn't. Um, interestingly, one of the key supporters was a union that I used to work for, which represents building service workers. So not construction workers. Uh, though they were for it too, but uh, the, the janitors, the doormen, the window washers, etc. They were the key labor backer, um, but they had a deal with the owner of the land in the first place that whatever got built on that site would be union. So they were kind of covered anyway, um, but they led the, the fight uh, to support Amazon. Ultimately, a combination of union opposition to the, to the development uh, community opposition and um, the kind of scared uh, political leadership in Queens after the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the upswell of anti-Amazon sentiment um, really made the conditions unbearable for Amazon and they backed out. Um, this is a bad thing for the people of Northern Virginia who are now you know, stuck with uh, the full brunt of this development. And Amazon is kind of trying to figure out ways to get into New York City in a quieter way. But it was a really amazing example of people standing up and saying, absolutely not. This is not the way we want our cities planned. Um, we are not going to give away the store to the wealthiest individual in the world. Uh, we're not going to allow him to gentrify the most diverse place in the world um, just because that's what uh, this confluence of real estate and government wants. And the other thing that's interesting about it, and uh, maybe people who live outside of New York City might not realize this, but the neighborhood where they were planning on putting uh, the Amazon headquarters in, in Long Island City in Queens, is already overdeveloped with luxury units, these massive high-rises that have gone up over the last 10 years from real estate speculators, many of which sit empty or largely empty, with many of these luxury units unsold or uh, being turned into rental units instead. And so there was an element of a lot of these speculators who maybe have taken haircuts in Long Island City thinking this was kind of their bailout. So there was an yeah. element of investment into the neighborhood, but also a way of bailing out all of these people who were leveraged hundreds of millions of dollars into those investments. Right. That's that's another way of, of viewing this whole thing was that uh, the governor and the, and the mayor were attempting to bail out their friends in the real estate sector who had uh, built out too much in this neighborhood. Um, 
it's it would have been interesting to see what the effects of the development would have been. Would they just have sort of like filled in the gaps and everyone would have moved into those vacant spaces? Or as many community members in Queens assumed, would the effects of it spread far out of that one neighborhood? Oh, I think there's no doubt. And in fact, a lot of the people who were doing the work on the ground, including some of the people in the DSA uh, network, including their tech working group and others who I've spoken with, I mean, there there were there were uh, antecedents that they could look at, including the, the processes that went on in Seattle and how Amazon right. transformed a number of neighborhoods in Seattle that had nothing to do with Amazon's headquarters there. So uh, I think that there was an element of being able to point to Seattle and other examples and say, this is what we're going to have. And it was really helpful to have um, a bunch of organizers and even council members from Seattle coming to New York and saying, look what Amazon did to us. Don't let them do that here. Exactly. So um, I want to just quickly ask a final question. Uh, We alluded to it in the beginning of the conversation, but obviously now we're in a stage where uh, this is essentially a real estate presidency, a real estate president. And um, I'd like to ask you, is is Donald Trump an outgrowth of real estate capital? Is he maybe in another way, the consolidation of the rule of that segment of capital? How do you read Donald Trump? Is is he an aberration, sort of a tumor that has come out of the real estate body politic, or is there something more to it? Well, that's interesting. I mean, one thing that's worth noting about Donald Trump and real estate, obviously, he's a luxury real estate developer. That's uh, where he got his money. His father got his money through real estate development. His father's father got his money through real estate development. And all of this is outlined in the book. Um, but other real estate developers don't generally love him. Um, he was never like the head of the, the lobbying group in New York, the Real Estate Board of New York. Um, he, was, he was a bit of an outsider. But I think it's not because he was worse than the rest of them. It's because he was louder and more obnoxious than the rest of them. And so he does in public what the rest of them do in private in celebrating displacement and celebrating um, luxury development at the expense of the poor, in going after rent-controlled tenants, uh, including elderly people, viciously in his buildings, in segregating uh, from his father's model, which was a uh, a racist model of housing, um, and they were sued by the federal government for that after the, the Fair Housing Act was passed. So he does all the things that all the other real estate capitalists do um, more proudly. And so it's not like he's the exemplary uh, model developer for the rest of the industry. He is the, um, the shame of the industry, but not for going outside the bounds of what's ordinary, but for doing what's ordinary uh, in public. And so I think it's useful to look at him um, as a, an extre- exceedingly maybe vulgar version of the ordinary developer or, ca- or real estate capitalist, but not as exceptional. 
That's right. And in fact, if you look at the policy choices that he makes, in, in many ways you see the real estate scumbag in all of them. And I and we already talked about foreign policy, and you mentioned the example of North Korea and the beachfront property, etc. But I mean you could point to a number of examples. Look at the look at the way that he degrades environmental policy. It's not just about making money for oil companies, it's also about being able to wreck those areas that are not generally profitable for him. He doesn't care if a Native American's land is polluted. It's, it's classic real estate developer tactics. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, his, his grandfather was at this in the Pacific Northwest uh, as well. Um, and, you know, his tax policies are good for the wealthy in general, but especially for commercial real estate developers. This program of opportunity zones um, which he latched onto Ivanka Trump, his daughter was a big supporter of, uh, also Cory Booker, notably, uh, was one of the originators of it. But it basically has as its theory that um, the, the problem with poor neighborhoods is that there's not enough hyper-profitable luxury development and that capital gains are just taxed way too low in this country. And both of those are absurd premises but that's going to be a policy that is that we're going to be living with the effects of for a very long time unless we can find a way to undo it. Uh, it basically incentivizes uh, highly profitable real estate development in poor areas as selected by governors. So it gave a lot of, of power to the governors to reward their friends in real estate with lucrative development opportunities and then have them not pay taxes on it. Um, so, yes, this is how he views the world, this is how he views the country, and this is how he rules. Very well said. We're going to have to leave it there. Again, the book, Capital City, Gentrification, and the Real Estate State, uh, that's from Verso Press. Get yourself a copy pretty much anywhere where books are sold, but uh, ideally, if you can, not on Amazon. But uh, That's know, right. Where, Thank you. Wherever, wherever, you can, wherever you can find it. Sam Stein, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always. We will chat again next week.